1519, a man by the name of Hernando Cortez arrived in Mexico. He was an explorer. He was there, though, to do some exploring, yes, but he was also there to conquer the mighty Aztec Empire. He arrived with about 600 men, and their, their plan was to go and to conquer that empire for Spain. Um, at one point, they were getting ready to, to leave the ships. They were getting ready to move in and to start that conquering of that empire. But the men got cold feet. The men didn't want to leave the boats. They wanted to stay. It actually was reported at one point to Cortez that some of the men had planned on stealing a ship and sailing away. Cortez was going to have none of that, so he reportedly told his generals, burn the ships. We're not going to let the men steal these ships and sail away. We're here. We're here to do a job. Burn the ships. And whether or not the ships were actually burned is unknown. Historians uh, sort of disagree on whether they burned the ships. What is known is that they were destroyed somehow. He destroyed his own ships, whether it was by burning or some other means. He did destroy his own ships so that they had to move forward. There was no option then to go back. There was no option to retreat. They had to press forward. They had to conquer or die. And he set that up for his men because that was what they had to do. Um, that actually, that particular strategy of burning the ships is, is seen throughout history several other times as well. And in um, several literary works, uh, for example, Alexander the Great is said to have done the same thing when he landed in Persia. Um, the Muslim forces that invaded the Iberian Peninsula also did the same thing. Uh, in the Roman myth of Aeneas, when he conquered land in Italy, it was said that he told his men to burn the ships. And even in Sun Tzu's famous The Art of War treatise, that he talked about this strategy of burning the ships, and there's no, no option for retreat. So the title of today's message is Burn the Ships. We're going to talk about what that means and what that means for us this morning. Shakespeare said, what is past is prologue. Dictionary defines prologue as a preliminary discourse, a preface or introductory part of a discourse, poem, or novel. So it's the beginning, right? It's, it, it sets up the rest of the novel or the poem or whatever. So if the past is a, what is past is prologue, as Shakespeare said, we're going to talk about past this morning, and particularly our past, your past. Now I'm going to start off this morning and get a little bit uncomfortable. Not real uncomfortable, just a little bit. Because I want you to think about your past. Um, a lot of us have things in our past that, that we are ashamed of, choices that we've made, things that we've done. Some of us have things that happened to us that we had no fault in, that we had no choice that it happened. Our pasts are all full of good things and bad things. But I want you to think just for a moment, we're not going to get too down into the negative here, we'll get a lot more positive, just for a moment about your own past and some of the things that you would say, I wish I could go back and do things a little differently. We also uh, have to talk about trauma, because for a lot of people, that's a big part of their past. And sometimes there are things that happen that you have to confront. Sometimes you have to go back and confront the past in order to be able to move forward and to heal. I found an article on thoughtcatalog.com uh, written by Brianna Weiss that, that put it this way. The name of the article was, Trauma is not your fault, but healing is your responsibility. And she says, what happened to you was not your fault. 
It was not something you asked for. It was not something you deserved. What happened to you was not fair. You were merely collateral damage on someone else's warpath, an innocent bystander who got wrecked out of proximity. We're all traumatized by life, some of us from egregious wrongdoings, others by unprocessed pain and sidelined emotions. No matter the source, we are all handed a play of cards, and sometimes they are not a winning hand. Yet, what we cannot forget is that even when we are not at fault, healing in the aftermath will always fall on us. When we heal, we step into the people we have always wanted to be. I love how she put that. We step into the people we have always wanted to be. Life hurts us all in different ways, but it is how we respond and who we become that determines whether a trauma becomes a tragedy or the beginning of the story of how the victim became the hero. So even when there's things like trauma in our past, we can move on from that, we can heal from that. Now sometimes that takes the help of a professional mental health person, right? And someone to help us through that trauma. Sometimes we need help from those around us to get through that, and that's okay. Definitely take advantage of those opportunities and the, and the help that's around you, but move forward and heal and get beyond that. Our past, we know, is there. It can't be undone. It's part of who we are. Um, we are all who we are today in, in large part because of what's happened to us, our experiences that we've gone through, uh, choices that we've made, choices other people have made for us. That's all part of who we are right now. So we're shaped by our past, right? Our past definitely shapes who we become and who we are today. We're a product of our past, those decisions that are made by us and by others. However, we are not defined by our past. And I want to make sure we really understand that this morning because some people, and I want to talk about this in a few minutes, some people are so bound by what happened to them in the past that they let that define them. And we are not defined by our past. And we'll talk about why that is and some of the, some of the things that actually the scripture says about that very thing in just a few moments. So we are not defined by our past. That 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 says this, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or who are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. Let's take a look at that. I'm going to read that again. Some of you were once like that. Past. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love how he says it. Some of you were like that, but you have been made holy. You're, you can get beyond that. That's who you used to be. It's not who you are anymore. An article in Relevant Magazine um, dated May 14th, 2018 was titled, Your Past Shapes You, But It Doesn't Define You. In that article, I talk about two unhealthy ways to view the past. The first unhealthy way is to live in the past. And we all know people that do that. He says this, we can get stuck there wallowing in where things went wrong and where opportunities were squandered. That makes it easier to get caught in the self-fulfilling prophecy that life is never going to work out. 
Some also dwell on how good things were in the past, an overly nostalgic longing for what was. When we live in the past, we struggle to live in the present. It's hard to be content with what is when we are fixated on what was. Let me say that again. It's hard to be content on what is when we are fixated on what was. The second unhealthy way to view the past he talked about was to ignore the past. He says, with this perspective, the past isn't prologue. It's irrelevant history, something to be discarded and forgotten. It's a coping mechanism to avoid the pain, embarrassment, or shame of our past. When we forget the past, we're prone to repeat the same mistakes, fall into the same traps, and not grow and mature. The past is a powerful teacher, and we can grow and learn in profound ways from good reflection on what was. So we don't want to do either one of those things. We don't want to live in the past and be stuck there, because then we're stuck there. You can't really be present if you're consumed by the past. But you also don't want to ignore the past. It's there. It's part of who you are. It helped to shape who you are. So you have to remember that it's there, and there are lessons that can be learned from that. So we don't live in the past. We don't ignore the past. But we don't give the past the power to define you. Um, the past only has the power to define you if you allow it to. So don't give your past the power to define you. Another thing that the past does beyond shape us and, and, and help turn us into who we are today is it also makes us uniquely suited for what God calls us to do. Each of us have different things that's happened to us. Each of us have different experiences. Each of us have different things that we've done and, and places that we've gone. Um, all of those things uniquely make you suited to help somebody else who's going through some of those very same things. The mistakes you've made, the lessons you've learned, they all can be used to help others. Let me give you just an example from my own life. Um, Megan and I, when we, when we were first married, we tried for a number of years to, to have children. It just wasn't happening for whatever reason. There didn't seem to be any medical issues. It just, for we know now, it just wasn't God's timing. But at the time, we didn't know what was going on. Um, and then after years and years of, of trying to have children, finally she got pregnant. And of course, we were overjoyed. And just a few weeks into the pregnancy, she ended up having a miscarriage. So obviously that was a devastating, devastating time for our family because we had waited for so long. It finally happened, and then the miscarriage happened. And, and I'll tell you, I, I struggled myself wondering, why are you doing this to us, God? You know, you've done, we've waited this long, we've prayed, we've done everything we know how to do, and then this happens to us. As you know, we've now had three children since then, so God did turn that around for us, and we're happy for that. But we know as bad as that was, and that was awful, that was awful. As bad as that was, we now are in a position where we can help those who have gone through the same thing, because we know exactly how that feels. It's hard, you, you can sympathize with somebody that you, it's about something you haven't been through and you can feel bad for them, but you can't really empathize with them as well if you haven't gone through it yourself. So having gone through a certain experience, you then are in a unique position that other people that haven't gone through that experience are in so that you can help somebody else. So God can turn that experience around as negative as it was to use to help other people. So that's what our past is. It helps to shape us, does not define us, 
But one thing that we need to keep in mind, and I know I've said this before, but we'll, we'll say it again, is you are not the same person. When, when he talks about in, in uh, 1 Corinthians where he talks about you used to be like that, some of you were like that, they're no longer the same. In fact, Scripture tells us 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11 says this, some of, some of you were once like that, we read this before, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you are not the same. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. So it's not even just that you don't do the same things anymore. You're not the same person that you were. When you, when you come to Christ, you become a new creation. So the old stuff is now gone. The new creation is there. That's huge because if you have a, 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 a lot of things in your past that are bogging you down, that's huge to be able to come and say, I'm a new creation. Um, you know, you hear stories all the time of, of, of people that have um, testimonies about things they did in their past that would, would make you really like, I don't want to be anywhere near you if you knew that they were like that at the time, but they've come so far because they're a new creation and, and God changes that. You also are not a slave to your past. Many people unfortunately live as slaves to the past. Many people are so tied down and chained by what happened to them or what they did they can't get beyond that. And you will never be able to move forward if you are chained to your past. That's why this idea uh, that Cortez had about burning the ships, we can use that same idea in our lives. Get rid of it. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments too, about how that can happen. But you're not able to move forward if you are chained to your past. In his book, Unapologetically You, Reflections of Light in the Human Experience, Steve Maraboli said this, the truth is, unless you let go, unless you forgive yourself, unless you forgive the situation, unless you realize that the situation is over, you cannot move forward. The beautiful journey of today can only begin when we learn to let go of yesterday. Philippians chapter 3 Verses 12 through 4 says this. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. So Paul, we all know what he did for us, right? What he did, his, he, we know his story. We'll talk a little bit more about his story in a few minutes because he's one of the greatest examples, I think, in, the, in Scripture of this concept of, of moving beyond your past. Um, but even he said, I haven't achieved these things, but I'm pressing towards them. I'm looking forward, forgetting the past. He's not talking about forgetting it as in it didn't happen. What he's talking about is it's no longer the focus. It's no longer bogging him down. Instead of focusing on the past, he's focusing on what's ahead. He's focusing on pressing forward and doing the work that God's called him to do. And that, if, if Paul says that, I think that's a pretty good example for us as well. Uh, the Apostle Paul can say, look, I haven't, I haven't arrived, 
I'm still working on it, but I'm pressing forward. I'm moving forward. Proverbs 4.25 says this, Look straight ahead. Fix your eyes on what lies before you. And then Hebrews 12.1, you're familiar with this verse, I'm sure. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Now, when he talks about stripping off every weight, I think we have to look at the past in there as well. It talks about the sin that so easily trips us up, but there's also things in our past that can slow us down and act as weights. So we discard all of those as we're running this race. And then in Romans 8, 37, how do we do all this? Well, we do this because, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. So no, we don't have to try to do this on our own. We don't have to do this in our own power. It's Christ's power that's there with us. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. That's how we can move beyond that. It's through that victory that we have through the power of Christ, how we can move past those things. Let's look at a, at a few biblical examples of this because I, I, the Bible is full of people um, as you read through that, that had uh, you know, interesting, we'll say interesting pasts, had some things that they did or some things that happened to them, and then they were able to get beyond that and able to become a good example for us. And let's take a look at a few of those here this morning. The first one we're going to look at is Rahab. Um, you're familiar with the story of Rahab, maybe. She was a harlot, not a very good past there. Um, she was in the city of Jericho, and she is the one who hid the spies, uh, the Israelite spies that came to Jericho. She hid them so they wouldn't be found out. Um, this is in Joshua chapter 2, and then again in verse 6, if you want to look this up and read her story sometime. Um, but that was, that was what she did. She, was, she, she uh, had a very unsavory past, I guess you could say, but she made a choice. She made a choice to, to hide the Israelite spies, and we're going to see in just a moment what her choice really was when she did that. Looking at her past and looking at the person she was when the spies came and were hidden by her, it, that's not someone that you would think would be thrown out as an example for us, right? That's not someone that you think would be someone that the, that scripture says, here, here's somebody that you can pattern your life after. Here's someone that you can follow. But a couple of things that to look at with, with Rahab, she was actually in the lineage of Christ. She was one of Jesus' direct ancestors. Um, Matthew chapter 1, that's Joseph's ancestry on his side of the family. She's listed there. And that's pretty incredible to me that you have this person that had such the past that she had that now has the uh, privilege and, and is part of that ancestry of Christ. Beyond that, she's actually mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, which we often title the Faith Hall of Fame, but those that are given to us as examples of great faith. And Rahab's listed there. Um, so from her past of, of being a harlot and, and, and not anywhere near someone that you would want to pattern your life after, use as an example, to being in, in the lineage of Christ and then mentioned as one of the great examples of faith 
uh, in Scripture is pretty amazing. In fact, James chapter 2, verse 25 has this to say. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. So Rahab had what I call a burn the ships moment. She had a moment when she had a choice to make. She had a moment when she was faced with, this is my past, this is a potential future, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Which direction am I going to head? Rahab's burn the ships moment happened in Joshua chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And that says, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. This is when the spies have first come to her. These people in Jericho have heard about all the things God has done for the Israelites, bringing them out of Egypt. Word has reached them that God is fighting for them. And she says, no wonder our hearts are melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. So it's much more than just, hey, I'm deciding to hide you guys. She's making a choice here. Your God is the supreme God. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all their families. Let's not gloss over the choice she's making here. This is her home. This is where she has lived. This is where her family is. This is her life. And she's telling them, I am ready to turn my back on all of that, and I'm ready to go forward with your God, because I know that your God is supreme ruler of the universe. I know the power that's there, and I'm ready to follow your God. That's what she's saying here. So this is really Rahab's burn the ships moment. Put the past behind and move forward. Let's take a look at Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 9, you may be familiar with his story. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now the tax collectors, they often would use Jewish people to do that task. So he was a fellow Jew, but they weren't very well liked by their fellow Jews. uh, Because um, not only were they in service to the Roman Empire, who were like evil people, right? That's how they viewed them. They were the occupiers. They were, they were a brutal um, group that, that would, would use force to get their way. And so not only were they working for them, and not only were they an agent of the uh, Roman Empire, but they often would cheat and steal their own people because what would happen is the Roman Empire would say, such and such a person owes this much for, for taxes. Whatever else you take from them, you can keep. So what the tax collectors would often do is they would jump up the price of what that tax was. So they would collect the tax that the Romans demanded, and then they would take a little extra for themselves. This was well known, and the people of, of Israel knew that this was happening. So they knew that these tax collectors were getting rich by stealing from them. They were taking more than they were even supposed to for the Roman government, keeping it for themselves. So these guys were not very well liked. Um, so someone with that kind of a past, he cheated people, stole from them, not well liked by people. This is what happens when he meets Jesus. You know the story, he's, Jesus comes into the town where he is. What did he do? He climbed up a tree, right? So he could see Jesus better. 
because uh, he wanted to know who this person was. He'd heard so much about him. Jesus tells him, come on down. I'm going to go to your house for lunch today. I love that. I love that part of the story. Jesus is like, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. You're going to feed me lunch today. Let's go. Let's go to your house. Um, I thought that was kind of a cool, cool moment. But in the process of this, there are people that are start, start to talking and say, you know, hey, Jesus is going to eat with that sinner. He knows what that person's like. He knows what they do. People like that. You know, those kind of people. Why is he associating himself with them? This, this is Zacchaeus, though, in his response, and this is his burn the ships moment in Luke chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. This is the decision that he makes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. So not only is he going to make restitution and give back what he stole, from people when he cheated from them, he's going to pay back four times as much as he took, and he's going to give half his wealth away to the poor. He's making a pretty radical choice here. He's making a pretty radical turn. And then in verse 9, Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. I can imagine that would have burned the people that were making those comments, the, the religious leaders and such that were saying, why is Jesus going over to his house? This had to really burn them because Jesus says, this guy's a true Jew. <laughs> you know, he's been stealing from us, Jesus. What are you talking about? Because he's making this choice and he's putting that all behind him and he's moving forward. So that's Zacchaeus, burn the ships moment. The woman at the well in John chapter four. You may be familiar with this. Story, Jesus um, goes into Samaria. It's a Samaritan woman. Now, the Samarians were not very well liked by the Jews. The Samaritans actually were, were sort of a hybrid uh, people. It was, it was Jews and um, the Gentiles, they had, they had mixed. And so now this was sort of the result of that mixing. Um, so they weren't well liked by the Jews, um, the Samaritans. So going to Samaria was not something the Jews liked to do. They usually tried to go around it, which actually made their journey a lot longer. It added miles to their journey, but they didn't even like to step foot in that part of the country. Uh, but Jesus traveled through there, and he met this woman at the well. Now, we know this was not just a happenstance meeting, right? This is not just something that happened, oh, it just kind of happened that way. This is very much planned. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and who, this, who was going to be there with him. But a little bit of background on this woman. She um, was an outcast in her own village. It's interesting that she came at the time of day when she did to draw water because that was not the typical time that you would go. You would either go in the morning or in the evening, sometimes both. She came about the middle of the day. That's not the typical time you'd come to draw water, but she did that because she was an outcast in that society. She couldn't come the other times. She had to come when no one else was there. Um, she had been married to five men and now was living with a man who, wasn't, who she wasn't married to, and that was, that was very much frowned upon. Um, so she was not someone that people wanted around. Um, she, she has an interesting comment here, though, in John chapter 4, verse 25 and 26, she says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, sometimes when we see that in the story, sometimes we gloss over that, right? Sometimes we, well, Jesus is telling her that he's the Messiah. Yes, 
Jesus is telling her he's the Messiah. That is true. Jesus is telling her a whole lot more than just I'm the Messiah. He says, I am the Messiah. Let's take a look at those words for just a moment. That term, I am, was actually the name that God gave himself. Uh, if you remember in the, in the burning bush, we'll read the verses in just a moment. That was what he called himself when Moses said, who, who do I say sent me? Who are you? That name, uh, the other names that we think of, of uh, names for God that we talk about and think of, those are actually more like a title. And they convey something about his character or, or who he is. That's not, their, not his name. His name is I Am. Uh, Hebrew was Yahweh. It was written Y-H-W-H. I didn't put any of the vowels in there. Um, that was a word they would not even say. So when they were talking about Yahweh, they would say Hashem, which means the name, and they would use that instead. They wouldn't even pronounce Yahweh when they were talking. Now, if they were writing the name, the, the scribes had an interesting um, process they had to go through when they would write those letters, Y-H-W-H. They would have to wash their entire body before they did that, clean the quill off so there was no ink from previous words, and dip the quill into the ink so it was clean new ink to write that word. That was how, that was how sacred it was to them. And in order to prevent the reader from actually pronouncing Yahweh when they read it, they would put the vowel points from the, from the word Adonai, which means Lord in lower, lowercase, um, to clue the reader to say that instead of the holy name. So they wouldn't accidentally say Yahweh, they would say Adonai instead when they saw that. Well, that led to, when the translations were happening to different languages later on, some of the translators misunderstood that to mean the word was supposed to be pronounced, Yehovah, which eventually became Jehovah. Um, so that's sort of the history of that word. We see it sometimes in Scripture as Lord, all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital W. That's that term, I am. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, this is where God calls himself that, but Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is the name? Then you sh well, what should I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So that word I am is self-sufficient, the self-sufficient one. That's who Jesus is telling this woman that he is. He's telling her, and she was familiar with scripture. She knew what Jesus was telling her. I am the Messiah. Not, not only I am the Messiah, I am. I am God. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Um, so this woman now is faced with a decision. She's faced with a choice. Here's this man proclaiming to be God, proclaiming to be the Messiah. What is she going to do? Well, her burn the ships moment is this. In John chapter 4, verse 28 and 29, it says this. The woman left her water jar beside the well. So not even getting, the whole reason she went to the well was to draw water. She just leaves her jar there and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? I think she knew. I think she knew this was who he was. But she's asking other people too, look, He's told me everything. This could be the Messiah. What do you think? Is this who we've been waiting for? So that's her burn the ships moment. She's making that choice to follow after him. The last biblical example we're going to look at is Paul. As you know, most of you are familiar with the story. He was Saul. 
Saul was a very zealous uh, Pharisee. He arrested Christians. Acts gives us some um, of the history there. I'm going to read a few verses. They're not going to be up front, um, but this is just the kind of person that Saul was. Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says, But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So he's going around pulling people out that were, that were Christians and throwing them into prison. Acts 9, 1 and 2 says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So not only throw them in prison, but to kill them. Uh, so he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. We know what happened as a result of that journey. That's where he had his conversion, um, was on that road to Damascus. But he also was present at and approved of the stoning of Stephen, who was the first martyr. Acts chapter 7, verses 57 and 58, says that they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, this is Stephen, and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats, laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. So Paul, uh, Saul was not a nice guy. He was arresting people, men, women alike, didn't matter, throwing them in prison, wanted them killed, was there at the killing of, of Stephen, and, and not only was there, but approved of it, um, and, and, and him being there in that sense was approval, and he did all of these things to try to stamp out this new religion of Christianity, try to stamp that out, because he was a Pharisee. He wanted things to stay the same way. Jesus changed things. Jesus was a radical. Jesus turned things upside down, and they no longer had the power that they once had, and he was trying to stamp this out. We know that on the road to Damascus, he had his conversion experience, and that was the beginning of his burn the ships moment, but where I see Paul's real burn the ships moment is here in Acts chapter 9, verses 17 through 20. Um, God had spoken to a man named Ananias to go and talk to Saul, and this is what happened. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately, immediately, he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. That's where Paul made his choice. What started on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him really shook him and really got him thinking, and now he's made the choice to forsake what was behind, leave the past there, and now he's going to boldly preach about Jesus. And we know that's what he did for the rest of his life. And we know him now as one of the great examples of faith and someone who wrote a lot of the books of the New Testament. So these are biblical examples, but I'm sure we all know people in our lives that also have been through these things. People that you know, their past is not so good. There's a lot of things back there, but when they come to Jesus, things radically change. And then they move forward and are a different person. 
there was a man um, in, in the church when I was younger. We, we were down in the Portland area. We went to a church called North Deering um, Christian Missionary Alliance, which was in South Portland, actually, I believe is, is um, where that was. But in, in that church, there was a man by the name of Tim. And Tim used to be part of a motorcycle gang. Not only was he part of the motorcycle gang, he was the president. So, I mean, this is the guy who led the motorcycle gang. This was a notorious rough group. They were into all kinds of criminal activity. Um, so he being involved in that and that kind of a history, that kind of a past, is not someone you would have wanted your kids hanging around at that point in his life. At some point, and I, don't, I never really heard his full testimony, but I do know that at some point he was radically changed by Jesus, and he turned his life completely around. And when I knew him as a kid in the church, he was nothing like what his past would have indicated that he was like. Nothing like that at all. Uh, my parents had no problem with us being around him and talking to him uh, because of the change that had happened. That, to me, is the greatest example of someone that I have seen in my life of that turnaround. But we all have people that we could probably point to for that. So what about you? We've talked about our past. We've talked about things. We've looked at some biblical examples about people that have burned the ships. But what about you? Do you need a burn the ships moment? Are you currently struggling with something in your past? Is there something that just has a hold of you and just you can't let go? Um, perhaps it's going to take talking with a mental health professional and start that healing process to move forward. Some things you can decide right now to just drop it and move on. Some things you can do that with and you make the choice to move on and there it is and it stays there. Um, every time this time of year we're coming into the Christmas season, we think about the new year and resolutions that people make, but you know, it is okay to start doing things before New Year's Day, right? You do know that you can do things without waiting for New Year's Day or resolution. There's literally nobody policing this. So you can do it even today and make that decision to move forward. Um, my brother this week sent me a, a video of a group by the name of Bayless. I had heard, I think, one or two of their songs before, but I'd never heard this one. It was called My Declaration. And it is, it is an excellent song, excellent song. And this is the lyrics to it. I'm going to read them to you quickly. It's a short, short lyrics because they do as a lot of groups do now and repeat that several times. Here's what he says. I'm tired of wasting time and soul away. I'll put my faith in who created me. They're all watching and they need to see a light into the world, the man I need to be. I want to lead courageously, leave a legacy. I want to surrender myself. Faith awakening live for eternity, I'll stand with no ovation. This is my declaration. This is my declaration. And this is the part that to me really stood out. I'm not afraid to face all I have done. And I'm not perfect, but a child of the sun. Gonna face my demons, for I know that they will come. They'll hear me screaming, the end of you has come. So what do you need to do? Do you need to burn some ships? Do you need to look at that? We're going to watch a video here in just a moment, the music video for, for King and Country, Burn the Ship. Some of you are probably familiar with the song. Um, but before that music video is another video of uh, Lucas talking about what the meaning behind that song is. And he goes into why they wrote that song and why it's so personal to him. So I want you to go ahead and watch this video.
very much. Well, as John mentioned, we just released this album. Uh, it's called Burn the Ships, and a lot of people are like, Burn the Ships, what does that mean? So I thought that I would uh, tell you a little bit about uh, the backstory. So uh, my wife, Courtney, and I, we got, uh, we got three kids, all right? We got a... You like kids here. I like that. I like you more. Uh, and uh, we got a three-year-old... Uh, sorry, we got a five-year-old. Don't want to miss one. Five-year-old, a three-year-old, and I got a newly minted one-year-old, and uh, they're all boys. So it's uh, a little crazy in our house, which is fun. But uh, when my wife was pregnant with uh, my middle son, Phoenix, uh, she was having uh, an unbelievable amount of, of nausea, kind of debilitating nausea when uh, she was having morning sickness. And so um, she went to the doctor and, and said, hey, is there anything that we can do uh, for this nausea? And, uh, and they said, oh, yeah, 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 take this medicine and, and you should be right as rain. And, and for about six weeks, that medicine worked. And then after that, it stopped. And she went back to the doctor and she said, it's not working anymore. And they said, well, we'll just increase the dosage. And so they gave her more medicine. And I was in Austin, Texas uh, for a show. Um, some fans of Austin, Texas here, all right. You guys are a long ways from home. <laughs> and uh, we're in Austin, Texas for a show and um, uh, my wife calls me and she says, hey, I, uh, and you know, it was a pretty frantic call. She said, I need you to come home. Uh, and I was like, okay, uh, what's going on? And she said, uh, I've, been, uh, I've been taking this medicine and uh, I just can't stop. I need you to come home and, and we need to deal with this. And so I got on the next flight, got home, and I come in the back door and, and I see my wife, Courtney, and I was like, you know, you, you okay? And she's like, I, I am right now. Uh, but as the night progressed, you know, she, she started saying things like, you know, look, I know I'm not meant to take this medicine anymore, but maybe if I just take one more pill, it'll just get me through to tomorrow. Maybe we'll just deal with this tomorrow. Maybe they want me to taper down. And then I could see her hands start to shake. And uh, you know, I realized we had, we had a little bit of a problem. And so um, the next morning we get up and, and um, we go to the mental hospital. And uh, we're in the waiting room and, and uh, you know, it's a strange facility in and of itself. And um, there's nobody else there in the waiting room, it's just my wife and I. And they, the nurse comes out and calls, hey Courtney, you wanna come on back? And, and we both get up to go and, and they looked at me and they said, Luke, you, you don't get to come, you gotta stay here. And there was just something about the loneliness for both her and I being separated in such a crisis moment that was really, really tough. And uh, they, when she was finished, they, they recommended outpatient therapy for her for about two weeks. And so for two weeks, we, we'd get up in the morning, drop her off at 9 a.m., and I'd come back and pick her up at 2. And um, she'd shown such remarkable improvement in that two weeks that when, when she was finished uh, that two weeks, they said, you, you know, you're done. You don't, you don't have to come back here anymore. And, um, and soon after that, we, we were at home, and uh, she had this bottle of pills in her hand. And uh, she said, Luca, I need to go and I need to go and flush these pills because these pills represent so much shame and so much guilt. I just need to see them leave. And uh, I was reminded of a story uh, about an explorer many years ago who, who went to a foreign land and, and he was there to explore the horizon, explore the mountains. And he had a lot of ships and a lot of men with him. And, and when they had arrived at this land, he called all of his men to the shoreline and said, we're gonna go and explore. And when he was kind of telling them what they were gonna go do, he realized that none of his men wanted to follow him. They just wanted to go back to the dirty confines of, of those ships. 
They didn't want to, it was comfortable. It wasn't good, but it was comfortable. They didn't want to leave that. And so he waits a few days and, and uh, he calls them all back onto the shoreline and he get, again and he says, I want every single soldier on the shoreline. And as soon as they're all there, he gives his generals the command to burn the ships. Because he says, we will not retreat, we will not go back. We'll move forward, we'll move forward into our future. We will see what lies over the horizon. And for my wife, when she took those pills and she started pouring them, that was her moment of burning the ships. She no longer wanted to be consumed by our past. She wanted to move into the future. And for a lot of us here, you know, we're dealing with stuff like that. Maybe not pills exactly, but there's stuff in our past that consumes us, that prevents us from moving into our future. And to that, I would say this. I would say go and burn the ships. Through the sorrow, out of the fire, 
Step into 